I am super excited to be starting a brand new sermon series with you. If you follow us on Facebook, then you might know that this series was inspired by one Kate Hakim, who asked for a New Testament epistle. I think it's fun to sort of poll the audience and see uh, you know, what you guys are wanting to, to learn about. Now, for you super spiritual folks, I would like to go on record and uh, let you know that I at least believe that the Holy Spirit works in this process as well. Now, I'm not sure if Kate had Paul in mind, seeing as though Paul wrote the overwhelming majority of New Testament epistles. But for some reason, again, I would like to believe that the aforementioned Holy Spirit was involved here. I was drawn to the letter of James instead. So over the next 10 to 12 weeks, we will be in a teaching series called James the Sage. Uh, Before we get too far, though, let me be clear about this. James is actually a terrible letter. It's a great book, but it's a terrible letter. In fact, the only reason that people think that this is a letter at all is because of the book's very first verse, which says, from James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes who are scattered outside the land of Israel, greetings. From a very technical standpoint, all of the elements of an opening to an ancient letter are present. In this verse, we are introduced to the writer, who is identified as James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll talk about James in a bit. Uh, We also are introduced to the recipients of the letter, which is sort of ambiguously identified as the 12 tribes scattered outside the land of Israel. And then the writer provides a greeting, which in our case is a pretty boring greeting where he says, greetings. Paul is a little bit more skilled at at the greetings. Uh, But the rest of James is basically a collection of wisdom sayings. Fancy people might call uh, the the genre of James a paranetic encyclical. Uh, And so, because we are fancy, we too will call it a paranetic encyclical. So, for all of the folks here in this virtual space, go ahead and be fancy for a second and say paranetic encyclical. Beautiful. I heard you. Uh, An encyclical is an official letter from a centralized location, uh, in our case, probably Jerusalem, and it's written by an authoritative figure in the church to all of the churches. It's it's meant to instruct, and this is where we get the paranetic bit from. Uh, Richard Bauckham says, the letter offers uh, an exhortation or advice on the conduct of of life. So it's not a very personal letter. If one of your COVID resolutions was to pick up paper and a pen and handwrite letters to your friends and family, uh, using James as a model would be a really bad idea. Basically, James says, hi, it's me. Uh, I'm important. Listen up. Okay, now that I've got you here, here's all the stuff that I want you to think about and do. 
Um, also, you should know, uh, I've photocopied this and I'm sending it to everyone else in the family. As, as we head into the election season, which, oh my goodness, it feels like we're not heading into the election season. We've been here for like two and a half years. I don't know if that's because I, I listen to some political podcasts and things like that, but it just feels like this one in particular has been going on forever. But as we head into the, the real uh, election season, only three months away from our presidential election, uh, we might be getting a lot of mail that's sort of like this. It's not really religious, let me be clear about that. And it's certainly not really wisdomy in in nature. It's not paranetic in the sense of it is attempting to to teach or instruct uh, on how to do life. That that's not happening. But we do get some official letters from campaign headquarters that's addressed to us from somebody who's important or at least somebody who thinks they're important or somebody who wants to be important. Uh, or someone who is posturing as important. Now, what we receive, it looks like a real letter. Uh, it probably has our name on it, uh, but it's not really a real letter. It's just uh, a, a form letter that's canvassing for a specific candidate. Uh, it's been mass produced, and for us, it usually just ends up straight in the trash. So the, the letter of James, it, has a sort of official and impersonal tone. And that's one of the reasons why some scholars have referred to James as the junk mail of the New Testament. It's a letter in form more than anything else. It's meant for a wide constituency to, to the 12 tribes um, who are scattered about. Uh, we also see that um, the fact that it's written to so many people, it reduces its personal nature. Uh, the letter is pretty devoid of any underlying narrative or background that, that emerges. Certainly there's themes that James is wanting to address in this letter, but it's really hard to reconstruct uh, much beyond that. And if you're writing to, to the 12 tribes scattered about, their individual settings will be so different that it, it would be very difficult to address all of them. So you kind of have to rise above those individual contexts and talk much more generally. Uh, a lot of scholars are pretty confident that James was written originally for Jewish Christians, and that contextual difference um, it becomes very apparent at times. And in fact, it's led some interpreters to wonder how or if the letter is still meaningful for us today since our context is so different. We are not Jewish Christians in the early first century. And I know what you're thinking, like that that's the case with a lot of uh, biblical material. But James, the focus is, is very different for a lot of scholars. I think over the course of this study, we'll push back on that uh, a good bit. And maybe for some of those reasons as well, a lot of folks are drawn to the book of James. It's super practical. It's really concise. Uh, it's, I'm gonna say a phrase here, it's pedagogically captivating. Now, what I mean by that is James is a good writer. Every commentary will make a note on how good the Greek uh, in James is compared to some other uh, 
um, New Testament books. But James is a really good writer, and and when he wants to bring a point home, he's able to provide a a really useful image for us to remember. In fact, these images that James constructs are some of the most notable features of the book. It's stuff like this. In chapter 1, verse 23, he writes, For if any are hearers of the word and not doers, they are like those who look at themselves in a mirror. They look at themselves and, on going away, immediately forget what they were like. Chapter 3, verse 3, it says, If we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we guide their whole bodies. Or look at ships. Though they are so large that it takes strong winds to drive them, yet they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great exploits. In chapter 5, verse 1, it says, Come now, you rich people, weep and wail for the miseries that are coming to you. This is a huge theme throughout the book of James, this uh, disparity between the poor and the rich. He writes, Your riches have rotted and your clothes are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have rusted and their rust will be evidence against you and it will eat your flesh like fire. These are very... um, palpable images that resonate with us. We, it's difficult for us to read these things and to walk away and to forget what, what they say. James is memorable. James is clever. James is, is laden with imagery that helps us to remember what James is talking about. James, in, a, in effect, teaches us through many of these uh, sort of aphorisms and wisdom sayings, James teaches us how to do life, which is another reason why people love it so much, because you can read a bit and then immediately put it into practice most of the time. Um, As I mentioned, the contents are uh, largely part of the wisdom genre. You might think of a reference like Proverbs as uh, something to help you understand what that looks like. And James certainly is influenced by a lot of these Old Testament uh, wisdom books. But really, Proverbs might not be the best example. It's actually more like another piece of ancient Jewish literature that I'm guessing you've never heard of. It's called The Wisdom of Ben Sirah. It's also known as Ecclesiasticus, which is a fun name to say. Um, but it, it, it's structured in this way, and we can see some similarities between James and some of these uh, what are called intertestamental uh, pieces of wisdom writing. So it's in between the Uh, the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. James is sort of relying on a lot of this tradition uh, that helps to formulate how he's writing. He's also dependent upon Jesus, as we'll find out in weeks to come. The, The book of James, it's pithy, it's memorable, it's instructive, and it's a terrible letter. Because that's not what you do uh, when you're writing to your friends and to your family. But it's a great book of the Bible. Another thing uh, that people talk about with connecting James to to wisdom, some people would say that it's like the Proverbs of the New Testament. If that helps you to place what what James is, is actually 
doing. Uh, it's a great book of the Bible. It's so rich, and I know you don't want me to say juicy, but I will. It's rich and juicy, and it's worth our time and our consideration. So over the next couple of months, we're going to unpack the wisdom of James the Sage. But tonight, I, I want us to think about something a bit more introductory. I, I want us to go back to the first verse and think for a few moments about who is actually writing this letter. Who is James, uh, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ? Now, I know, I know. Exploring the authorship of a biblical book, it doesn't usually make for particularly interesting sermons, but this one is different. You see what I did there? I basically just said, uh, this isn't what some people can make interesting, but look at me, I'm going to. Now, that's not what I meant, but I think that this, this could be compelling if we think about James as a character in the Bible and bring his story to bear on this book that's sort of devoid of any, any narrative hooks, okay? Um, Scott McKnight lists five characters named James in the New Testament. We have James, the father of Judas, uh, not Judas Iscariot, um, I think I'm 99% sure that that's the case, but let's just go with it. James, the father of Judas, uh, James, the less or James, the younger, who is the son of Mary, a wife of Cleopas, uh, Mary and Cleopas, uh, you might remember are the, the, the two people on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24, and they have a son named James. Uh, we also have James, the son of Alphaeus, who was one of the 12 disciples of Jesus. And we have James, the son of Zebedee, whose brother was John, uh, also an apostle and one of the 12 disciples of Jesus. And then we have James, the brother of Jesus. Now I'm going to spare you all of the details, the, the nerd notes, uh, but most scholars would conclude that the most likely candidate who was writing the book of James is James the brother of Jesus. They would also say, if it's not James the brother of Jesus, then it is someone who is pretending to be James the brother of Jesus. They also say, or it might be a James that we've never heard of before and we don't know, and we don't have any information about, but that nobody really goes that route. So uh, for our purposes, it doesn't matter if it's really James, the brother of Jesus, or if it's someone pretending to be James, the brother of Jesus, although I'll go ahead and throw this into the mix. Um, I think that it really was James, the brother of Jesus. Now, I want us to think about him as a character for a second because we have met him before. Uh, he does show up in the New Testament a lot, actually, but uh, prior to the, the writing of this book. And actually, we have some of our background knowledge on this character because of our unfinished 9,764-week series on the Gospel of John. We've We've met James before, uh, sort of. He, he wasn't really named, but he was embedded in there. So there's a story in John chapter 7, and this is right after Jesus has fed uh, the 5,000. He's performed this miracle, and then as often happens in the, in the Gospel of John, he launches into this teaching. He's talking about the bread of life, and he's talking about manna in the wilderness, and he's making all sorts of connections, and he's ticking some people off. And, and then in, in chapter 7, 
uh, we, we reach this story. Jesus goes um, to Galilee. Uh, it says that he did not wish to go about in Judea because the Jews were looking for an opportunity to kill him. Hopefully you remember that bit. A lot of times Jesus was ticking off the wrong people and, and the wrong people wanted to kill him. They were looking for this opportune moment for him to die. And we know that they find that and Jesus is eventually crucified. There's a lot of people who are angry with what Jesus is, is all about. Uh, at any rate, it says, now the Jewish festival of booths was near. Remember, this, this is the backdrop to a lot of Jesus' teaching in John chapter 8, I'm the light of the world. Uh, this is at that festival. But it says, His brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea so that your disciples also may see the works you're doing. For no one who wants to be widely known acts in secret. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. And that's not really clear on its own, uh, but then we have this parenthetical statement in verse five from the author, and it says, for not even his brothers believed in him. There's some debate as to how far we wanna take that. Uh, some people would say that the brothers didn't believe that Jesus was, um, enacting his his messianic role in the right way. And other people would say they didn't believe this guy at all. Uh, any sort of claims that he was making, any sort of things he was doing, they were completely uh, in opposition to him believing the things about himself, uh, and they weren't having it. James clearly uh, would have been a part of the brothers who were not believing Jesus. He, he may have been, and this is a complete reading in, we have no basis for this, but he, he may have been the one who was even saying this to Jesus in, in the story. We don't, we don't know that, but, but the intonation of the story is that James and the other family members, they, they don't believe in, in Jesus and, and what he's up to and almost sort of taunting him like, all right, if you think that you're this guy, then don't do your stuff in secret. Go show all your disciples. Yeah, I bet that'll work, right? Because you can, you can do whatever it is that you say that you're doing. You know, we do have this other weird story uh, in the book of Mark, and it's got some parallel accounts in Matthew and, and Luke, I believe as well. Uh, but this is uh, early on in, in the gospel of Mark, it's chapter three, and Jesus has just called his 12 disciples. And then it says that he goes home and, and crowds came together uh, so that they could not even eat. At this point in the narrative, a lot of people are compelled by what Jesus is doing. They're following him. They want to be near him. They want to hear what he's saying. They want to see what he's doing. Uh, some of them are, are maybe skeptical, but some of them are really intrigued and want to be following Jesus. Now, in verse 21 of chapter 3, it says, When his family heard this, they went out to restrain him, for people were saying he's gone out of his mind. And there's this sort of implication here that his family is siding with the people. Like they too believe that Jesus has gone nuts and they need to stop him from doing the things that he's doing. Uh, actually in, in verse 31, it's kind of like it, it, the way that Mark works here, um, 
this might be one of the, the Markin sandwiches that we talked about a lot. It's story like kind of, kind of begins, the family hears about this and then they go to find him and then they interpose a story here and then the family shows up uh, much later. So in verse 31, it says, then his mother and his brothers, they showed up and they're standing outside and they sent to him and called him and a crowd was sitting around him and they said to him, hey, your mother and your brothers and your sisters are outside. They're asking for you. And Jesus gets really weird and really esoteric and really sort of like floating off the ground. And he says, who are my mother and my brothers and my sisters? Right? It's like this really weird um, sage Jesus uh, maybe breaking off some of his own paranetic uh, teachings here uh, and instructing folks in, in what's going on. But he kind of hovers above and like, I don't, who are these people that you're, you're speaking of? But we have this weird story in, in Mark where the family seems to think that Jesus is absolutely nuts and they want to go and shut down whatever it is that he's doing. And then if we hop back to, to the book of John, at the end of the story, we get another note that seems to imply that Jesus's brothers and James included, they're not on board with what he's doing. It's at the crucifixion. Most of Jesus's followers have, have left, they have gone, remember? And, and Jesus is being crucified and we have a handful of people standing around near the cross so that Jesus in John's gospel can communicate with them. I don't believe this shows up in any of, of the synoptics in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but this is the scene. It says, meanwhile, standing near the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, um, or Cleopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, who is the author of the book of John, most people would say that this is John, it says, uh, he said to his mother, woman, here is your son. And then he says to the disciple that he loved, here is your mother. It's almost like this transference of I'm dying. Mom, this is your boy now. And John, this is your mom now. And from that hour, it says the disciple, John, took her into his home. Scott McKnight writes, it's often argued that because Jesus hands his mother over to the apostle John, remember the disciple whom Jesus loved, and not to one of his brothers, that the brothers had not yet come to faith in Jesus. So we have all these sort of breadcrumbs throughout the gospels that are leading us to see that James, one of Jesus's brothers, is just not on board with what Jesus is doing. So we have these pieces of, of the story. And then uh, if we trace that out, then, then we have a funeral. And remember in the gospels, when Jesus dies, everyone thinks that it's over. Uh, they, they bet on the wrong messianic horse, so to speak. Because in the ancient world at this time, when the Messiah figure died, it was over. Jesus, side note, is not the only messianic figure around the first century. There had been many others that a large number of Jewish people put their hopes and dreams on that they would become the Messiah who brings about the kingdom of God. They all died. And as a result, many of their movements just kind of frittered out. 
And this is what usually happens. And for many of Jesus's followers who were still pretty, uh, pretty bent on Jesus doing what he was supposed to do in a certain way that was very much not what Jesus was about. Remember, his death is part of the the deal for him. That's how he was to bring about the kingdom. But no one wanted to see that. He says that throughout the Gospels. Hey, I'm going to die, and then in three days I'm going to come back to life. And they're like, what? No, that doesn't make any sense because they were so focused on this one way and not on the, the Jesus way. So there's this funeral that happens, and and I don't want to uh, psychoanalyze the text or begin to have you know moments that are not rooted in scripture, but imagine what that would have been like for James and for the other members of the family. However, they dealt with the teachings of Jesus and the miracles of Jesus and the claims of Jesus and the followers of Jesus. They were still mourning a brother. But then something happens to, to James. Uh, to, to other members of the family as well. Something happens in, in no less than 43-ish days. This is after the resurrection and after Jesus appears to his disciples and to a lot of other folks as well. And as Paul notes in 1 Corinthians 15, after he appears to James, after all this, everything changes. And this is so true throughout the New Testament. When Jesus is raised from the dead, everything is turned on its head. The world is turned upside down, as N.T. Wright would say. Everything changes for James. And then in Acts chapter 1, Jesus has visited a bunch of people. He's appeared to them. He's appeared to James. They've had conversations. We don't know anything about this. Uh, Remember, Paul in in Corinthians is is going to be a little bit separate than what we're looking at here in Acts. Acts is the second part of the gospel of, of Luke. And in the first chapter, Jesus has ascended, whatever that looks like, whatever that means, but he's no longer with them. And all the disciples are gathered in a room waiting for the Spirit to show up. I know this sounds really strange to to the uninitiated, uh, but this is part of the the narrative. Jesus kept saying, I'm going to leave, but it's a good thing that I'm leaving because when I leave, I'm going to send you a comforter. I'm going to send you an advocate. I'm going to send you someone who will be with you forever. He's referring to to his spirit, to the Holy Spirit. And it says that all of the disciples are are in this room. um, And then it gives us a note. It says that all of these were constantly devoting themselves to prayer Uh, together, it says, with certain women, including Mary, the mother of Jesus, as well as his brothers. In due time, James would become a leader in the early church. And as we will soon learn in the book of James, he became a student of Jesus's teachings, perhaps the same teachings that he had rejected the entire time that Jesus uh, was, was teaching while he was alive, that the ministry that Jesus had, the things that James thought were, was making him insane or the things that, that James was, was taunting or the things that James was just not believing, he becomes a student at the feet of Jesus. He becomes a disciple of Jesus. 
Richard Baucom, who is a, a well-known New Testament scholar, he would go so far as to say that what we have in the book of James is the work of a sage. And it's the work of a sage who has taken his master's teachings, in this sense, it's Jesus's teachings, and rather than merely reformulating them or regurgitating them or citing them, what James has done is James has internalized them and made Jesus's teachings his own. This is what happens within wisdom traditions. You don't just cite people. This isn't like you're writing that 15-page uh, research paper in high school or early in college where you just put in block quote after block quote after block quote and you've got your aerial uh, typeface and you're at like 13 or 12.5 and you're just hoping that your professor doesn't notice. They always notice. Side note, they they all, because they're, they're looking at other normal Times New Roman 12-point font compared to your atrocity. Courier New. What are you, who are you trying to fool? Anyway, it's, it's not like that. James has so internalized all of the teachings of Jesus that they're just now beginning to pour out of him as he's instructing the early church to be like Jesus. And James is helping to facilitate that transformation. According to tradition, James, the brother of Jesus, would eventually die a martyr's death. This is where things get really interesting. The details are hard to reconstruct, and I'm not going to, but I'm going to throw you some stuff here just so that you can consider it. Uh, Josephus, who was a, an early church historian, um, writing for Rome, I believe, so a lot of his work was was very apologetic in nature towards uh towards the, the, the Jewish community. He says that James was stoned. Um, another early church father, Clement, uh, says that James was thrown down from the pinnacle of the temple and beaten to death with a club. I, personally, I think that just being cast down from the roof of the temple would probably do it, but they wanted to make sure, so they beat him uh, with clubs. And then we have another early church father, Eusebius, uh, who, includes that James's accusers demanded a denial of his faith in Jesus. And then he goes on to, to record that James, quote, with a loud voice and with more courage than they had expected, he confessed before all the people that the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Now, I don't, I don't want to sketch a whole argument here. Again, I, I don't want to make things up that, that we don't have real uh, hooks for. I don't want to attempt to reconstruct history for us. But I would like us to consider this transformation of James, the brother of Jesus, from the pieces of the story that are available to us, the stuff in the New Testament, and even some of this traditional information as well. James rejected Jesus. For how long of his life, we are unsure. But James, seemingly during the ministry of Jesus, said, nope, this guy's nuts. I'm not on board. I'm not following him. N -n -n no. James is largely absent from the story of Jesus, who is going around this uh, this uh, region of, of Palestine and, and is uh, healing people and bringing people together around the table. Jesus is including people. Jesus is bringing the kingdom of God 
to earth. And James is not a part of that. He's, he's gone. He's doing something else. And then after the death of Jesus, which I would have to assume rocked James's world at least a bit. After that, Jesus appears to him. Everything changes. With the death and resurrection of Jesus and the appearance of Jesus to James, everything, it, it turns on its head. And James, from what we know and from what we have, James becomes a student of Jesus' teachings. He becomes a leader of the early church, a really important leader of the early church. Most of his work was just uh, bringing people together. We'll talk about that as, as we get into it. And then he was martyred for his faith that had become, had moved from non-existent to unshakable in the face of, of certain death. Now, I hate sermons that approach the text from a moralistic framework. Like, here's a story and just go do what this guy did. Like, that's not that's not good preaching. I don't find it compelling. I also think it leads us to misread the text more often than not because we're extracting things and taking it out of its context and we're just looking for this universal morals of the story. Uh, But I can't read this first line, this very first verse in the book of James and not think about his before and his during and his after. And as much as this makes for a a bad or at least questionable sermon, I do think that there are things that we can learn from the example of James. For example, like James, many of us have had surprising experiences with the risen Christ. Like James, many of our lives have had a distinct shift, a turning point, a before and an after, maybe also a deconstruction and a reconstruction. Like James, many of us have gone from rejecting Jesus to accepting Jesus. And again, I I think that for some of us, that has meant rejecting the Jesus of our youth and moving very bravely, I might add, to accepting a different image of Jesus. I know the pain that's involved in that progression. I know what it's like to have this system of faith that you've inherited and it just doesn't fit. It just doesn't work. It just doesn't cohere with what we actually see in the Bible, what we actually learn about Uh, history, what we actually see in the real world, and moving from that pre-packaged Jesus to a different image of Jesus. It's like moving from uh, the iconography of the very white Swedish Jesus to something that looks more akin to a first century Middle Eastern Jewish man. it's it's a it's a it's a brave and bold move for many of us because it takes us taking steps from our childhood to where we are now. I wonder if where we might learn from James is to follow his example in also becoming a student of Jesus. And this is where we're going to tread on that moralistic reading. 
where we too become a student of Jesus, of, of his teachings, and we begin to apply them well in our context. And we move from a first century Jewish context to our 21st century American context, wondering what it looks like for us to love God with everything that we have and to love our neighbor as ourselves, what it looks like for us to be uh, dominated, in a sense, by this rule of love for our entire life to submit to that teaching. This is what James does in his letter, by the way. That's like the guiding principle is, is love your neighbor. What it looks like for us to apply that now. Over the next few weeks, as we explore this rich and deep text, I hope that we become inspired. And tonight, I guess I'm hopeful that we might begin to reflect on our commitments, on our goals, on our priorities, where we are in this in this movement. And if we can compare ourselves to the life of James, how that how that plots out, if we find ourselves in a state of rejection, if we find that in a state where we are students or disciples of Jesus and and how that looks for us to become leaders and what that looks like for us to become a sage who is not only uh, learning but internalizing and not just regurgitating but making it our own and dispensing it to those around us in real need. May we follow in the footsteps of James and may we also become a disciple of Jesus the Sage.